Let's get out our Bibles tonight and let's turn to the book of Genesis. Chapter 11. I hope you're not in chapter 11. I hope you're in chapter 11, but I hope you're not in chapter 11. We're in Genesis chapter 11. Tonight I want to start with a trivia question. What does an animal habitat in Locust Grove, Georgia, in a Wisconsin water park, billed as the world's largest water park, have in common? Answer, they both go by the name Noah's Ark. But the real ark had nothing to do with petting zoos or with slip and slides. Rather than fun and games, the ark survivors, they walked out into a scary new world. As 2 Peter chapter 3 put it, the world that then existed perished. Remember, the pre-flood paradise had been replaced now by a rugged terrain with brutal weather. In addition, hostility between Noah and his former furry friends was now a daily occurrence. There was now a hostility between humans and animals. They had become mutual and natural predators. Man was now forced to hunt and to be hunted. All this happened in the post-flood world. In this foreign and frightening new world, it would be our tendency to want to gather together, to want to huddle up for protection. But that was not God's command to Noah and to his descendants as they exited the ark. In Genesis chapter 9 verse 1, God told Noah, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, they were to scatter and to repopulate the planet. Now chronologically, chapter 10 of Genesis actually follows chapter 11. Chapter 11 comes before chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 contains what we call the table of nations which shows how the nations were divided and later resettled. But chapter 11 takes us to an important place, to a town, a city, a place called Babel. And it tells us how, how and why God jump-started all of this human migration, this scattering out across the planet. You see, rather than spread out, Noah's descendants had disobeyed God and they had huddled up. They had gathered in what is today Iraq, in the plain of Shinar. They joined together as one people under one government, and they had one ruler. A man, you remember, that was identified back in chapter 10 as Nimrod. And do you remember what his name means? Anybody remember? To rebel, yes, to rebel. And Nimrod leads the first organized revolt against God. According to chapter 10, verse 9, Nimrod was a mighty hunter. Tradition says that he invented the first hunting techniques. May have invented the first deer stand, for all I know, I'm not sure. But he had this uncanny way with animals. And in a world where animals had suddenly become a constant threat to the human race, in a world that there was now hostility between man and the animals, and man had no real skills in defending himself, they had yet to be developed, A man with Nimrod's abilities and capabilities would be hailed as a savior, as a very, very important person. Well, that sort of sets up chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, Let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. This word asphalt is interesting. It's the same word that's translated later as the waterproofing material that was used on the basket that floated the baby Moses down the Nile River. You remember when Moses came down the Nile? The scripture says that that little ark, that boat that he was in, was pitched 
With asphalt, it's the same word. It's a waterproofing material. Keep that in mind. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. That's what God had said. He wanted them to be scattered abroad. Instead, they huddle up and they come together. And Nimrod builds a tower to the heavens. Notice, not to the glory of God, but in order to what? To make a name for ourselves, to glorify mankind. We know a lot about these Babylonian ziggurats. They were observatories. They also served as pagan temples. The Babylonians worshipped and they consulted the stars. It was the birthplace of astrology. And apparently Nimrod was the culprit who first introduced into the world the evils of astrology. But notice what Nimrod does here. He constructs a skyscraper with waterproofing material. (laughs) Now let me ask you a question. Why do you think anyone would build a waterproof tower in the middle of the desert? Why would you think? They had to have expected another flood. Apparently, Nimrod had convinced the people that God was a liar. That he and his rainbow couldn't be trusted. The Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, says that Nimrod actually tried to wage a war against God. Nimrod convinced the descendants of Noah that he was the good guy while God was the bad guy. Look at what he had done to you. Look at how he wiped out the world. You can't trust this God. Don't believe that rainbow. Nimrod's feet will be duplicated in the last days, by the way. There's another one who will come who will convince the world that God is the bad guy and he is the good guy. That's the Antichrist who also will rally the nations together and establish another global government. It's interesting that today the world again speaks a single language. Today we speak the X's and O's that digitize data and flow over the internet. It's linked the world. Global communication has set us up for another Nimrod. And have you noticed, whenever the world comes together, whether it's for the Olympics or for some Y2K celebration or at a United Nations gathering, notice it always does so not to glorify the Holy Spirit, but to glorify the human spirit. That's what Nimrod was doing at the Tower of Babel. Verse 5 tells us, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do? Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. I want you to understand that God is against globalism. He's against one world governments, not because it's a bad idea necessarily, but because he doesn't trust the heart of man. That's the problem. As long as men are together, when one family rebels, there's the potential of dragging everyone else down with them. As long as there's a one world, a global situation, then one man's sin can spread throughout and cause the whole humanity to be polluted, just like it had occurred before the flood. God wanted to separate the population so that rebellion and apostasy could be minimized and could remain localized. You see, I'm for global unity. Don't misunderstand me. But only under the reign of Jesus Christ. That'll be the only time when it's safe. God said, come, let us go down. Notice again, God speaks to himself in the plural. Let us go down. It's similar to what he said earlier. You remember when he said, let us make man in our image. And of course, as we pointed out, this use of the plural pronoun is a reference to the Trinity. God is one God, yet he exists in three persons. He is an I and he is an us. God continues, let us go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Man's rebellion needed to be held in check. And so God threw a wrench in his ability to communicate. He confused the languages. 
And it caused the people to scatter as God had desired and gravitate toward like languages. And so they formed in these like language groups. Again, it was God's way of, of getting the rebellion localized so that one family couldn't drag down the whole earth and, and contaminate the whole human race. God knew how evil would spread. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth. And they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel. The word means confusion, where God confused the languages. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. This, again, was an act of God's mercy and God's protection for humanity. You see, if God hadn't baffled the languages... Nimrod's occult brand of religion, his astrology and all that went into Babylonian paganism, it would have become normative for all humans, and it would have doomed humanity. And so God broke up the party at Babel before it ever really got started, and he began a new work on the earth. He began a new work on a people who would be faithful to his truth. And chapter 11 ends with the genealogy of a faithful son, of Noah's son Shem, Noah lived 350 years, by the way, after the flood. Shem lived 50 years after Abraham's son Isaac was born. That means that you shouldn't believe it when people come along and suggest that the creation account recorded in the Bible was really just passed down, word of mouth, from person to person to person over countless generations. Don't, don't believe that. You see, Lamech's Lamech, who was Noah's son, he got the account from Adam. He was still alive at the time of Adam. Shem, Noah's son, got the account from his grandpa, Lamech. And Isaac's 12 sons, the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, they got it from Shem. Thus, there were just three links from the time and story of creation all the way down to the nation of Israel. There were just three links in that story, putting the story all the way back to the first man, Adam. I think that's important to realize. It'll be important to point out to the skeptics when you talk to them. Well, verse 10 tells us, This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was a hundred years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. After he begat Arphaxad, Shem lived five hundred years and begat sons and daughters. Arphaxad lived thirty-five years and begat Salah. After he begat Salah, Afarxad lived 403 years and begat sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begat Eber. After he begat Eber, Salah lived 430 years and begat sons and daughters. A lot of begotten's going on here. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begat Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begat sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begat Rehu. After he begat Rehu, Peleg lived 209 years and begat sons and daughters. Now, I hope you're comparing these numbers with what we read earlier. The numbers before the flood, the age spans were 900, 800, 900 years old. Here, they're, they're going down, aren't they? Rehu lived 32 years and begat Serug. After he begat Serug, Rehu lived 207 years and begat sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and begat Nahor. After he begat Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Notice the lifespans of man are diminishing in length. Humans are no longer living 900 years. The ages are dwindling toward current averages. And when you get on down to Abraham and so forth, it becomes very close to the lifespan that we have today. Evidently, without this protective vapor canopy that shrouded the earth before the flood, without this, human beings began to age faster. You know, the latest theories on aging are interesting. And they really make a similar suggestion. Scientists say that the sun's radiation is really what triggers the aging process. That somehow it triggers a gene that's embedded in the DNA and so forth. And it's the radiation from the sun that actually triggers the aging process. If you didn't have that radi radiation, hey, you probably could still live to 800, 900 years old. Verse 24. Nahor lived 29 years and begat Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years 
and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Abram becomes a very pivotal character in our story. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldees. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. In Genesis chapter 1 through 11, we are racing through history. The first 11 chapters of Genesis covers a period of about 2,000 years. While the next 39 chapters, chapter 12 through chapter 50, will cover a span of only 245 years. We're going to slow down drastically. We also jump some huge chasms of understanding when we go backwards into Genesis. And we don't really get a lot of detail, especially all of the detail that we would like. For example, what was life like before the flood? What was it like under this vapor canopy when animals and man were friendly, when there was no hospital? What was that like? We know very little about those times. But we know even less before the fall. What was it like to be living in a world without sin? Wow, that would have been mind-boggling. And then, what do we know about what happened before the first creative act? We know even less about that. All we know about that is God. In Genesis chapter 1 through 11, God works with mankind as a whole, and with very little success, in fact. Chapter 11 closes with a worldwide revolt. Satan chooses a man. His name is Nimrod. He chooses a place, Babel. And he chooses a means, fear, fear of God. And God has to bust up this mutiny. Now, if I were to ask you where you would divide the Bible into two parts, if I were to say, give me the two parts of the Bible, most of you would divide the Bible between Malachi and Matthew, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, not me. I would insert the division here between Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12. The first half of the Bible is Genesis 1 through 11. God is working with mankind as a whole. But now he will turn his attention to one family and to one group. And for the remainder of the Bible, from Genesis 12 all the way through Revelation, he will be dealing with this one man and his family, Abraham. In Genesis 12, God's strategy changes. No longer does he deal with mankind as a whole. Instead, he picks one family through which he will perform his work of redemption. And beginning in chapter 12, God chooses a man. His name is Abram. God chooses a place, Canaan. And God chooses a means, not fear, but faith. And the rest of the Bible is the story of the plan of salvation that God works out through these Hebrew people, the family of Abram. Verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Genesis 11, verse 29, remember, says that Abram lived in Ur of the Chaldees. That was one of the most wealthiest and most sophisticated hubs of ancient civilization. Ur was renowned for its extravagances, in fact. Did you know that bathtubs were first used by the populace in Ur of the Chaldees? I mean, Ur was hot tub haven, baby. While living in Ur... Abram married a her, a woman named Sarai. By the way, her name means contentious. And this proves that in those days, marriages were arranged. 
since no man in his right mind would have married a gal named Contentious. <laughs> One day, Abraham, Abraham, Abraham came home from work, and he announced to Sarah, his little Contentious, he said, baby, pack up. Pack up the house. We're going to move. And I'm sure Sarah got real excited. She thought, we finally got a raise. Uptown Ur, here we come. Let's get out of Ur. Ur, here. <laughs> Let's buy one of those swimming tennis places, you know. And, and I can hear her say, honey, what posh subdivision are we going to be living in? She really wasn't ready for the answer. Well, honey, I don't really know. God didn't tell me where to move. He just told me to move. What do you mean? Yeah, honey, God just said, leave your father's house and, and leave your family and go to a place that I'll show you. We don't really know where we're moving yet, honey, but let's just pack up. We'll, we'll load up the van and we'll just take off and God will show us where to go. Now, remember, this woman's name was Contentious. I'm sure a heated discussion followed. Abram's initial foray into faith was more of a stumble than really a step of faith. For in chapter 11, verse 31, we discover that rather than leave his family and his father's house as God had told him, Abram took Terah, his father, and his nephew Lot with him. Abraham settled too in Haran, not where God intended for him to, but in Haran. All he did was just move upstream. He just moved up the Euphrates about 600 miles. He moved about 600 miles from, from Ur, but he was still 400 miles from the place God would eventually take him, Canaan. He settled for less than God's best is what he did. You could say this, Abraham, his first steps of faith, he followed God, sure, but he followed God halfway. And guys, that'll always get you in trouble. This happens to so many Christians. They come to church, they clean up their act, they make commitments to God, but they still hold on to elements of the old life. They still hold on to pleasures from the world. They've got one foot in the world, you might say, and they've got one foot in the church. And rather than move to a new land that God wants them to be in, all they do really is just move upstream. It's been said, a backslidden believer has too much of the world to enjoy God and too much of God to enjoy the world. Or as Donald Gray Barnhouse put it, they have enough Christianity to be miserable in a nightclub, but not enough to be happy in a prayer meeting. <laughs> you see, a partial follower of Jesus is going to be a miserable person. They're not going to be happy anywhere. Abram's home was a home of compromise. It's interesting, the word Haran, where he settled at first, it means parched. And when you compromise your commitment to Christ, when you only follow God halfway, you end up parched. You end up spiritually dry and thirsty. It seems that Abram doesn't fully follow God until his father dies. Terah was holding him back for some reason. And let me ask you, what is the Terah in your life? What is it that's holding you back from following God all out? What needs to die in your life for you to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Guys, often faith begins with a funeral. It's only when we bury that old desire that's holding us back that we're really free to move on and, and go for all that God has for us. Well, God continues addressing Abram in verse 2. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Now, remember what Nimrod wanted? Remember what Nimrod said? Let us make a name for ourselves. That's why he built that big tower out in the desert. But he went about it the wrong way. He rebelled against God to make a name for himself. He struck out on his own. Abram, on the other hand, chose to live by faith and to follow God even into the unknown. And notice what God here promises him. A great name. I will make your name great. He ended up getting what Nimrod desired because he didn't desire it for himself. He followed God and trusted God, and God gave it to him. Remember that. Well, God promises in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Over the course of history, nations have risen and fallen based on their treatment of Abram and his descendants. 
You remember Greek culture started to decline when Antiochus destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. The same was true for the Romans. The Jewish inquisitions were what brought Spain's greatness to an end. When Hitler tried to exterminate the Jews, Germany's defeat became certain. And I believe one of the reasons for the fall of the Soviet Union was its cruel treatment of the Jews within its borders and its opposition to the nation Israel to boot. And in contrast to those nations, I have no doubt in my mind that the reason that God has shed His grace on America is because we have remained since 1948 Israel's staunchest ally. And I'm warning our nation, if we ever decide to pull that support, I believe that God's judgment will be close behind. God told Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In Genesis 12, God makes a threefold covenant with Abram and his progeny. God promises Abram, and, and i got to say, this is important. This is the key to the Bible right here. You want to get this down. God promises Abram three things. He promises him a chunk of land. He promises him that his descendants will be a great nation. And the third promise is that through Abram, all the world will be blessed. This is the most far-reaching and strategic covenant in all the Scripture. In fact, the rest of the Bible builds on the Abrahamic covenant. Guys, you understand this covenant and you'll understand the rest of the Bible. Here's a condensed version of God's promise to Abram. Just three words. He promises him a land. He promises him a nation. And he promises that he'll be a blessing. Land, nation, blessing. Here's an easy way to remember it. Three things. Sod, seed, salvation. That's the whole Bible in a nutshell right there. God promises Abram, sod, a piece of land, seed, a great nation from his descendants, and salvation, that through him all the nations will be blessed. And obviously through him was Jesus Christ born, who became the Savior of the world. We'll be talking more about this covenant as we go through Genesis. Verse 4, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh and the Canaanites were then in the land. Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants... I will give this land. Notice, it's only when Abram arrives in Canaan that God affirms his promise to Abram. You know, so often we want God's confirmation. And after we get it, Lord, then we'll obey. But that's not the way God does business. God says, you believe. You follow me all the way, not just halfway. Take me at my word. Act on my promise. You'll be obedient. And then I'll give you the confirmation. Then I'll show you what I'm up to. It's always faith first. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. Notice twice Abram builds an altar at Moray and then at Bethel. In fact, everywhere this man goes, we find him building one thing, building altars. Now understand, he could have dug wells for water. He could have built homes for comfort. He could have built forts for protection. But instead, Abraham endeared himself to the heart of God because he chose to build altars. You see, his top priority was not sustenance or comfort, or protection, but worship. That was his top priority. Abram builds altars to worship God everywhere he goes. This is why he becomes the father of our faith and such an important part of God's plans. Hey, maybe you're building a home tonight. <laughs> you were out there this afternoon just inspecting it. Or maybe you're building a business. 
Maybe you're building a fortune. Maybe you're building a family. But as you journey through life, are you stopping to build altars? Are you taking time to stop and worship God? Understand, Abram was a man of faith. But as we've already seen, his faith wasn't perfect. And from time to time, Abram is guilty of stumbles or lapses of faith. And we find one here in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now when famine strikes, rather than stay where God's called him, God never told him to go to Egypt. The famine forced him to go to Egypt. God called him to go to the land. He should have stayed in the land. He should have trusted God to meet his needs. Instead, when the going gets tough, when things get a little desperate, Abram bolts from the will of God and he journeys to Egypt. And on the journey, he has a conversation with his wife. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Please, say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. Now you know why Sarah was so contentious and so ornery. She had to live with a jerk like Abram. Hey, nothing like laying your life down for your woman here, huh? <laughs> What's really interesting about this is that at the time, Sarah was 65 years old. And yet she was so beautiful, Abram was worried that the Pharaoh would see her and want her for his wife. I mean, 65 years old, lady. I mean, Sarah could have gone shopping for a bikini with a social security check. Think about that. I mean, this woman was a knockout. But all Abraham is worried about here is getting knocked off. And so he concocts a lie. Sarah, take off your wedding band. Claim that you're my sister. Now this was partially true. It was a half-truth, you see. Genesis 20, verse 12 will explain to us later that Sarah was Abram's half-sister. But understand, a lie mixed with the truth is a lie nonetheless. Don't forget that. Verse 14. So it was, when Abram came into Egypt, that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Ladies, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. Write it down. Refer to it later. Points to Sarah as an example for every Christian wife. She was submissive to her husband. Not just when he acted wisely. Not just when he made smart moves. Not just when he acted in her best interests. Sarah submitted to his lead even when he was pulling boneheaded blunders like he's doing here. Sarah submitted. And God rewarded her submission by both protecting Sarah's purity and by overlooking Abram's stupidity. There is power in a submissive wife. Now the nations are supposed to be blessed through Abram. But here Abram gets rebuked by a pagan king. Verse 18. And Pharaoh asked, or called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, I want you to realize nothing good comes from a lapse of faith. Understand that. Don't think Abram gets away here unscathed. 
He brings back from Egypt two items that are going to cause him serious problems later on. Herds and Hagar. Write those two things down. They're going to cause him major trouble. The herds cause a problem right off the bat. They create a rift with him and Lot. Hagar will create a rift with Sarah. Chapter 13 begins. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. A lot of that he got down in Egypt. As a matter of fact, many Bible scholars believe that at this time, Abram was the richest man on earth. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now I really love what he does here. He shows a real repentant attitude. You remember back in Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus? You remember the problem there? The believers had left their first love. Their initial passion and enthusiasm from God for God. But Jesus takes them back. He says, remember where you went astray. Repent of having turned from God. And repeat those first works that brought you joy and that pleased the heart of God. Three things. Remember, repent, and repeat. These are three things for the backslider. If you want to come back to God tonight, these are the three things you need to do. Remember, repent, and repeat. This is what Abraham does here. He remembers his lapse of faith. He went back to where God originally had him. He went back to Bethel. He repented of his sin. And then he repeated time spent at the altar. If you want to change for the better, if you want to alter your life, then return to the altar. Have a morning devotion tomorrow morning. Spend time with God. Get back to the first works that you used to do when you first got saved. Call on God's name. Verse 5. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. And, and notice there, out of the blue, Moses just mentions the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land while Abram and Lot were having all these squabbles. And you wonder why he throws that in. Perhaps he was pointing out that the conflict between Abraham and his nephew was a poor witness. Hey, believers were arguing and the pagans were looking on watching. What kind of a witness is that? I think we as the church, I think we need to be aware of that danger. What kind of a witness you know, is it to the world around us when the people in the church are squabbling and arguing and unable to get along? We can make the same mistake. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. You know, there are times when even Christian workers experience strife between each other. And I think the key to overcoming that strife is remembering what Abram says here, We are brethren. Don't we forget that sometimes? We get arguing, we get upset. With, but remember, remember, we, everyone in this room tonight, we, we are brethren. Remember that. Is not the whole land before you, he says? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. He gives Lot a choice. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of God, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Sor. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord." Lot made the mistake of which many Christians today are guilty. He ignored the evil of Sodom because he enjoyed its entertainment and its conveniences and its glamour. You see, Lot was like the guy who 
went to parties but didn't drink. Oh, I just wanted to hang out at the frat house, you know. I just wanted to be in there with the cool. Oh, I didn't drink much myself. You know, he just hang, liked hanging, a lot liked hanging out with the cool people in the cool places. Lot didn't realize that eventually the bad company that he was keeping would ultimately drag him down and ruin his life. And that's the mistake that many Christians make as well. Well, verse 14 tells us, And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. Lot looked eastward and he chose the plain leading down to the Jordan. But God tells Abram to look north and south and east and west. One day, Abraham is going to inherit it all. Isn't it interesting? Abraham let go of his desires and his ambitions and his dreams, and he let Lot choose first. He did. He let Lot choose first. He said, I'll take the leftovers. But notice, because he did that and had that kind of attitude, God then blessed him with everything. He says, now you look everywhere, and eventually that's going to be yours. Just another version of the verse, Seek ye first the kingdom of God in His righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. Well, verse 15 also tells us of the duration of the promises that God makes here to Abram and to Israel. He says, And all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants for how long? Forever. And forever makes for a pretty long lease. Forever. Which means that despite what the United States government might say, or what the Muslim countries might say, or what the United Nations might say, or what the Europeans might say, or what the whole world community might say, the promised land belongs not to the Arabs, but to the Jews. And it will belong to them forever. Verse 16, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Abraham will end up fathering an innumerable multitude of people. He says, Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. I love verse 17 there. After giving Abraham the title deed to the land, God tells him to walk the property. In other words, enjoy, get out, enjoy the blessings that I've given you. This is also a word to you and me. In Christ, we have been entitled to all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But God doesn't want to just give them to us. He wants us to get out and walk the property. He wants us to explore and experience the blessings firsthand. As we're told by the prophet Obadiah, we need to possess our possessions. Every believer needs to get out and walk the property daily. Well, verse 18 says, Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. There he is again, building what? An altar. Spending time with God, worshiping God. Guys, this is the key to building up your faith. Abram was a man of faith. He didn't worry about building houses and bank accounts. He built altars. I hope we'll follow suit. Well, chapter 14 tells us, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and by the way, this man's secular name was Hammurabi. You might have heard of Hammurabi, the Hammurabi Code. Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedlamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. Tidal started the wave, you know. <laughs> so it was called the Tidal Wave, you know. That they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma. Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. In other words, war broke out between these nine different city-states. They were in two alliances, fighting against each other. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, down by the Dead Sea. Twelve years they served Chedlamar, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedlamar and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Carnaim. This word Rephaim means giants. That's what it means, giants. And it's another name for the Nephilim. 
that we talked about back in Genesis chapter 6. You remember the Rephaim, the Nephilim and the Rephaim, you know, they, they may have been the mutant offsprings of the demons and the women when they intermarried and, and all that occultism and all that stuff we talked about back in chapter 6. Here it appears again. Apparently, isolated examples of it happened after the flood. They're in the land of Canaan. And Moses says that Rephaim led, lived in Ashtaroth Karnaim. It's interesting. Ashtaroth was a Canaanite fertility goddess. And so the place Ashtaroth Karnaim may have been a center of worship for Ashtaroth. And, and of course, the worship of Ashtaroth uh, involved prostitution. It, it mixed sex with the occult. And this condition, these kinds of conditions might have been conducive for the evil that had occurred before the flood to have actually occurred again in this isolated situation. Well, verse 5 continues to list the kings who came with Chedlamar to put down this revolt. He says, the, Zuz, the Zuzim, the Zuzim, that's how you say it, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakirathaim. Deuteronomy 2 also identifies these Zuzim and these Emim as also giants. You can go back and read that, Deuteronomy chapter 2. And the Horites, and, and, and just, just a point. Later we're going to discover that when Moses leads the people into the land of Canaan, you remember he tells them to wipe out all the men, all the women, all the children, even the animals. And we wonder, God, why are you being so harsh? Why are you being so cruel? Well, perhaps Canaan had become a seedbed for this kind of occult activity and these kind of, you know, these, these kind of hybrid kinds of offspring that were occurring between, you know, when the demons were taking material bodies and actually having relationships with human women and it was creating this kind of pollution of the human race. I, I believe that that was going on in Canaan and that's why God was so, so severe in saying, you need to go and wipe them out. He, he, God had wiped them out himself before, during the flood, with the flood. And now the, Moses and the Israelites were to wipe these people out again when they entered into Canaan. That's just an idea, though. And the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness, these were the kings that fought with Chedlamar. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they attacked all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admon, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Zelah, that is Zor, went out and joined together in the battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedlamar, king of Elam, Tidal, Armophel, Arioch, four kings against five. Sodom and her allies... You know, they, they may have thought that they had their opponent outnumbered, five to four, but not so. For now, the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Asphalt pits. If you're reading out of the old King James Version, it's called slime pits. And later we're going to see that Sodom and Gomorrah was known for their slime, their sexual deviations and perversions. And is it little wonder here why they get beat in battle? Homosexuals in the military didn't work for Sodom. Men who lack the moral courage seldom find courage in other areas of their life. And it's ironic that these sexual deviants here of Sodom and Gomorrah end up falling into the asphalt pits or the slime pits. Slimy people often end up in slimy circumstances. Of course, God loves slimy people and He'll forgive slimy people if they'll repent of their slime. Verse 11. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. But here comes their big mistake. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, 
and his goods and departed. They picked on the wrong guy's relative. And Abram turns into Big Jake. He's going to go after the little guy. Verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Ishkal and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. The word Hebrew, by the way, means to cross over. And Abraham was called the Hebrew because he crossed over the Jordan and entered into the land of Canaan. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Remember, Abram was a man of faith, but apparently he saw no conflict with trusting God and keeping a shotgun loaded. Literally, I mean, he, he saw no conflict in trusting God and keeping an armed, trained militia under his roof just in case. Abram divided his forces against them by night. Notice too, nighttime warfare. Abram is employing some strategy here. Again, he's a man of faith, but he has no problem with tactical military maneuvers. And I think this points out to me that real faith isn't passive. It just doesn't sit back. Real faith is an active faith. Abram trusted God, but he also did his part. That's what real faith will do. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Apparently, Abram's army had been outnumbered by Chedlamar, four to one. But as Abram believed... One plus God always equals a majority. Don't forget that. And he won a great victory. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedlamar and the kings who were with him. After his victory, Abraham is coming back and he meets two kings. He meets the sinful, sing of, the sinful king of Sodom and he meets the saintly king of Salem. This is very important. The word Salem means peace. And Salem is an abbreviated form of the word Jerusalem. Here's the first mention of Jerusalem, or the city of peace. Now he meets the sinful king of Sodom, but now he meets the saintly king. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now here is this mysterious fellow named Melchizedek. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 7, the writer there tells us that Jesus was not a priest after the order of the Levites or the Jewish priests. He was a better priest after the order of this man, Melchizedek. Under the law of Moses, kings were forbidden from becoming priests also. There was a separation of church and state. The king couldn't also be the priest. But Melchizedek was under a different order. He was both a king and a priest. And thus Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek because he was also a king. Hebrews 7 verse 3 reveals Melchizedek's bizarre pedigree. Read this with me. He was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. Now imagine that. He had no birthday. He had no date of death. As Hebrews says, he remains a priest continually. Apparently he stays a priest today. This has led some scholars to believe that this man, Melchizedek, was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I believe that as well. Remember in John chapter 8, verse 56? Jesus said one day to the Jewish leaders, He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And they asked the same question we ask. When did Abraham ever see Jesus? It might have been right here, in the person of Melchizedek. 
It's an interesting note here too. What does Melchizedek come bringing in his hand for this meeting between he and Abram? What's he got with him? Bread and wine. Perhaps he wants to share communion with Abram. It could be that Abram knew a lot more about the gospel than we give him credit. Verse 20. And he, Abram, gave him a tithe of all. And this becomes a big deal to the writer of the book of Hebrews because he argues an argument that's really hard for us to understand. It's sort of based more on Oriental logic than on Occidental logic or Western logic. But, but he, he speaks almost genetically. He says that since the tribes of Israel were still in Abram's loins, when he paid tithes till Melchizedek, that that demonstrated that the priests who would come from Abram or the Levitical priests would actually be greater, I'm saying would actually be less than the priests that would come after Melchizedek because a lesser person pays tithes to a greater person. And since it was Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek, in essence, his descendants, the Levites, would be a lesser priesthood than those who would follow after the order of Melchizedek or Jesus. And, and so he goes on to prove how that this means that Jesus is a better priest than the Jewish priesthood. Melchizedek, he pops up all over the scene, and we'll see him later in the Psalms and then later in the book of Hebrews. Verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me. Anar, Ishkal, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Abram preserves his integrity. His integrity was more important than the spoils. You see, unlike Lot, who was willing to sort of snuggle up to the evil of Sodom in order to take advantage of its riches and its conveniences, Abram wanted no part of having anything to do with Sodom. He wanted nothing it had to offer. He wanted no association with it. He recognized its corrupting influences, and he wanted no one to think that he had anything to do with Sodom or with the king of Sodom. Abraham preserved his integrity, whereas Lot was willing to compromise. And in the end, we're going to see that both those decisions have consequences. And that's what we'll take a look at next week. So, your homework for next week is to read Genesis chapter 15 through, oh, not sure how far I'll go next week, uh, chapter 20, say, chapter 20, chapter 15 through chapter 20. And you know what? You've got two weeks to read it because I won't be here next week. Next Sunday night, we're going to have Dennis Zek, who is a Christian illusionist. And he, uh, his, we've seen his presentation before. He's a fascinating guy, and he has an incredible presentation. And, and he actually weaves, he does all these tricks and all these illusions, and he weaves the Christian gospel and the Christian message all throughout you know, what he, what he does. and You will love next Sunday night. You'll have, a, you'll have a blast. And you'll be able to enjoy it with your kids. Bring your kids with you, and, and they'll have a big time with it too. Bring a lost friend. He's very evangel- evangelistic, so bring a lost friend with you, and uh, maybe they'll just get saved next week. Maybe you might want to bring that person that's on your piece of paper next week and, and just see what the Lord might want to do in their heart. Next uh, Saturday, I'm going to be speaking at a men's conference for the city of Houston, Houston, Texas. And so please keep me in your prayers. Um, And then next Sunday morning, I'm going to be at the uh, Calvary Chapel in Houston uh, at their services. And my wife's going to be gone next. Is it next week? She's going to be gone uh, this weekend. Is it this weekend? Is it this weekend? 
Or is it the next weekend? One of those weekends, she's going to be gone. <laughs> she's going to be in uh, Virginia. She's going to be doing a women's retreat for the Calvary Chapel in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So would you please keep us in your prayers over the next couple of weeks? We sure would appreciate it. I think that's about it. That's all, folks. <laughs> Lord, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for encouraging our hearts. Thank you for this, the workers in our children's ministry. Thank you for Anna and her team tonight. The wonderful job I'm sure they did. All the Sunday school workers. Thank you for those ladies back in the nursery, Lord. Thank you so much for them. And Lord, we thank you for Zach and the, the folks in the middle school that are ministering to the kids tonight. Bless them, Lord. We love you. We ask that you bless our upcoming week. May your word go out. May you be glorified. May your people be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.